60s today, which is a weather. It is indeed a beautiful day. I think it will be in the 60s today, which is a welcomed change. Um, and as, as that's happening, as those Bibles are being passed out, let's open in prayer, and then we'll jump into our conversation on this text, so pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of today. Thank you for this beautiful day and for all the ways that you have been generous to us, for this reminder that you are the one who ultimately takes care of us and meets our needs. It can be very easy for us to uh, find our, uh, our security, our identity in the things that we're able to produce, in the things that we're able to make, in the income that we're able to generate. And sometimes in the midst of that, God, we can lose sight that, again, you are the one that holds us and keeps us and provides for us. And so please remind us of that this morning, of all the ways in which you have been so generous and gracious towards us. Uh, Father, soften our hearts as we talk about a, uh, a topic that's not easy to speak about in our culture, certainly not easy to speak about in church. Would you give us an extra measure of grace this morning? as we talk about money and possessions. We pray all this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. <clears throat> all right, well, let's start with this story. When I was about four years old, my parents moved uh, our family from San Jose to Salinas, California to help plant a church. That, uh, before that, my dad had been serving in uh, a college ministry at a large church. There was about 500 students in that ministry. And uh, so, of course, he had this huge team of volunteers that were helping him out. And when we were sort of in that period of transition moving to Salinas, one of the volunteers in, in that ministry came to my dad and said, hey, I'm a contractor. When you guys move to Salinas, don't buy a house. Buy a land, and I will build you a house on that land. My parents were like, oh, wow, that's really nice of you to offer, but you know, what do you do with a promise like that, right? So we moved to Salinas, and we were living in a, a condo for a little while, and uh, my parents were, you know, looking at the housing market and seeing what was available. And they eventually did stumble onto an acre of land just outside of town. And so they called this guy. His name was Jim. They called Jim up and they say, hey, are you still serious about that offer? And he's like, yeah, you guys found land. Let's do this. Let's build this house. So they bought that acre. They made the plans. Jim came and laid the foundation. And then the really fun part of the story is that on a Saturday morning in May of 1985, Jim drives down a bus of 70 guys. They're wearing bright yellow shirts, and they frame and roof the entire house in one day. Okay? Here's a couple pictures of it. Uh, but we actually have this, like one of those uh, videos where you can watch the whole day in eight minutes or whatever, and it's just amazing to watch. And then, of course, that's me um, when I was seven years old, I'm wearing the shirt. The shirts say Butchery Barn Raising, May 4th, 1985. Okay? So these guys come down. They build this house basically in one day. My parents still live there to this day. They call it the house that friends built. And as cool as that part of the story is, the biggest thing uh, for me and I think for my siblings growing up that left an impression on us was how my parents then used that home as a way to, to be generous to other people, to do ministry and, and to be a blessing to our family. There's been countless missionaries that have come there for periods of rest. There's thousands of people who have met in that house for small groups and for parenting classes and welcome to church sessions, all these kinds of things. And then, of course, it was always a really safe place for me and my siblings to bring friends and hang out. 
Now, I begin there this morning with the house that friends built because as we continue to explore life in the kingdom of God, okay, this, this kingdom life that Jesus is casting vision for in this section in Matthew, the kingdom of right relationships, Jesus is showing us in this passage that we just read that there is a very different way of holding our resources, our gifts, our talents, our possessions, our money, a different way of understanding provision and how our needs are met in this kingdom. The economics of the kingdom of God, and they're very much our economics in the kingdom of God, are very different, vastly different from our normal economics. Again, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is uh, one of Jesus' most famous, maybe his most famous teaching. It's well known both inside and outside of the church. And we've talked about how we often think of Jesus' teaching, particularly in this sermon, as being upside down. There's the world's values, and then Jesus sort of flips all of that on its head. But we've learned that for us, in the cultural waters that we swim in, we are actually the ones who are upside down. We use the analogy of a plane. We're flying upside down and our gauges look right because everything's level, but the truth is we're oriented to the horizon in the wrong way. And so what Jesus does for us, particularly in this teaching, is flip us right side up, orient us correctly towards the horizon and what is true. Now again, today we're stepping into some uncomfortable territory for many people. We're going to be talking about money and possessions. We don't like talking about this. We really don't like talking about this in church. And yet, right in the middle of Jesus' foundational teaching on what his kingdom is like, what life in his kingdom is like, he starts talking about money. And the reality is this is not the only time that Jesus talks about money. It's actually one of the things he talks about the most. He talks about money more than he talks even about heaven and hell. And so there's a lot that we can learn from Jesus on this matter. A lot that Jesus has to say and teach us about money. So again, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. We're going to kind of look, uh, work our way through this passage a little bit differently this morning and then spend some time talking about uh, a practical response to this. But one thing I do want to point out here is that there's an interesting parallel between This part of Matthew chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, which we'll look at more next Sunday. So there's a slide here that lays this out for us. But in both of these passages, okay, there's a a big introduction section and then, or instruction section, and then a section of encouragement. Within the instruction, there's exhortation, there's a parable about the eye, and then there's a follow-up story to that parable, and then in the encouragement section, Jesus will remind us of this big truth of how God, as our good Father, is taking care of us, and will work from a small detail, a small point, towards a larger truth. So today, again, we're just looking at chapter 6, but thinking about that pattern, having that pattern in the back of our mind, Jesus opens with this exhortation. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Very clear contrast that Jesus is making here right out of the gate, right? There's treasure that we can have on earth, and there's treasure we can have in heaven. One of those treasures will last, the other will not. And in the midst of this, Jesus makes this connection between treasure and our hearts. And it's the heart that has really been at the center of this sermon. 
Jesus has been doing all these things, uh, drawing us deeper and deeper into the depths of our own hearts. Going back to chapter 5, Jesus uh, uh, uncovered our heart motivations in the ways that we relate to other people. Connected the action of murder with the heart issue of hate and anger. Connected the action of adultery with the heart issue of lust. Then last Sunday as we explore the first part of chapter 6, Jesus goes even deeper into our hearts, challenging our image management, right? All the ways that we try to do good things to make ourselves look better. He called us to this stealthy spirituality so that we begin to trust God's affirmation of us more than the validation we get from others. What he's doing is calling us to pay attention to these questions. Who do we trust? Who do we serve? What treasure do we value? And so kind of given the, the flow there and the context, it makes sense that he would go to money next. Because money, possessions, experiences, education, whatever it is that we value, it will control us. It, it will go after and capture our hearts. What tre we treasure what we are devoted to. And I think you can flip that around and say we are devoted to whatever we treasure. So then Jesus takes this kind of weird turn, this parable about the eye. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. This can feel, again, kind of out of left field. What does this have to do with treasure and our hearts? In our NIV Bibles, you'll, you'll notice that there's a, a, a footnote there, and it points out that in the translation of the Greek here, there can be a, a, a connection between this idea of health and generosity. Healthy eyes gener are generous eyes. Unhealthy is stingy. One of the literal translations of haplos, this is the Greek word that's translated good, healthy, or generous in this text, is singular, undivided. When our eyes are undivided, we tend to be more healthy. When we're looking at a bunch of different things, it leads to this place of unhealth. We might say in connecting this to the previous section, Jesus is calling us towards wholeheartedness. And this leads right into the follow-up parable where he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Wholeheartedness, undivided attention, undivided hearts. The deeper Jesus gets into this sermon, the deeper that we're drawn into the life of the kingdom. Again, the deeper we're drawn into these conversations about our hearts, wholeheartedness, and the dangers of a divided heart and a divided allegiance. And this really is the essence of life in the kingdom. Right relationship with the right Master, And I love the way that someone on our teaching team said it when we were talking about this passage. They said Jesus is inviting us to serve a more noble master, the most noble master. There's so many different things that we can be serving. And Jesus says, this is what life in my kingdom is like. Serve the most noble master possible. So there's this section of instruction, then Jesus moves into encouragement, and he begins to describe what we might call a non-anxious lifestyle where we radically trust God, our good master, our noble master, our good father, as we talked about last week, to take care of us. 
Now, within this section, I think there are a couple of common objections to Jesus's uh, sort of don't worry, it will all work out teaching. One of those objections is, hey, but what about people who are literally starving? What about people who have nothing? Is Jesus over-spiritualizing what is a very harsh reality for many people in our world? And then second objection is that this sounds really naive. Don't worry, be happy, made for a, a nice musical moment in the 80s. But this just doesn't work in the real world. Now, Jesus makes it very clear all throughout Matthew that there are hungry people in the world and they need to be fed. And in several instances, Jesus feeds them. He is very concerned with people's tangible needs. In fact, it's one of our primary callings as Jesus' disciples. He says that when we feed someone who is hungry, we are, in essence, feeding him. What we see is that vital to Jesus' vision for the kingdom is the redistribution of resources. One of the great examples we have of this in Scripture is the first church, Acts chapter 2. It says they shared all their stuff. No one in that community had need because they were devoted to the king. They were devoted to his kingdom. They were devoted to heavenly treasure. And so they held their money and possessions very loosely, sharing with one another so that no one was in need. So Jesus here, he's not saying that we just sort of blissfully float along, not worrying about our real tangible needs, about our concerns. He just taught us in the previous section to pray about these very things, to bring them to our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. But again, he's flipping us right side up, teaching us that in his kingdom it works differently. There's a different set of economic principles at work in the kingdom of God. Needs get met outside of the normal ways. Seventy guys in yellow shirts show up and build a house in one day. When we were in um, campus ministry in Boston, I had to fundraise my salary, and we have so many crazy stories from that season of life. Here's one of my favorite stories, though. I had a friend who at that time was in the fire academy, and he was driving around one day listening to KMBR 680, the sports leader. Those of you who listen to sports radio know what I'm talking about. They're having one of those contests where, um, you know, you call in, you answer a trivia question, and you win some sort of prize. Well, the prize happened to be season tickets to the San Francisco Giants, okay? This is before the 2012 season when they won the second of three World Series. Those of you keeping track. So my friend Devin calls in, and he answers the question right, and he wins season tickets to the San Francisco Giants. But being in the fire academy has very little time to actually go to the game. So he calls me up one day, and he says, hey, no big deal. I won season tickets to the San Francisco Giants. I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Way to go, Devin. He's like, hey, what I want to do is I'm going to sell a lot of these tickets because I can't go to very many of the games. I want to give you all the money that I make from selling the tickets. And so I love thinking about the fact that the San Francisco Giants helped fund campus ministry and life in the kitchen for a year. All right, life in the kingdom of God is weird. God takes care of us and provides for our needs in all kinds of weird ways. The kingdom of right relationships disrupts the normal order of things. The economics of the kingdom of God are not like the economics of the world. 
Now, Jesus closes this whole section with another invitation to wholeheartedness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Everybody said amen, right? One of my favorite verses. Single-mindedness, wholehearted living, leads to clarity and to freedom. Freedom from worry, freedom from a divided heart, and, and maybe most importantly, freedom from the oppression of serving lesser masters. Now, as with many things uh, with Jesus' teaching, there's a thing here going on with money and possessions and, and, ha- and how we think about all of that stuff. But there's also a thing behind the thing. Underneath all of this is what we might call a DTR. Are you guys familiar with the DTR? Define the relationship. <laughs> Some of you have only heard about it. <clears throat> This is that thing where two people are interested in each other romantically and they have that conversation where it's like, what are we? Uh, you know, is this like, are we friends? Are we just hanging out? What, what are we? We're, let's define the relationship, okay? This is a big part of what Jesus is doing here in this section it is saying, where are you? Okay? Where is your heart ultimately? He's leading us towards clarity, clarity of treasure and purpose and heart allegiance. Now, we need to remember, and we saw this, again, significantly last Sunday in the earlier part of of Matthew chapter 6. We need to remember all the things that God has done for us, too. Okay, we talked about how Jesus is God's I got you. That through Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection, God has said to us, I have taken care of your sin. I've taken care of the separation between us so that we can be in right relationship with one another. Jesus is God's I got you. And there are reminders of this all throughout Scripture. Because of his great love for us, God, who, notice the language here, is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then the next slide should show you a bunch of other scriptures where this idea is repeated. God's incredible generosity towards us. So again, the invitation here, this invitation of clarity and freedom. This reminder of what God has done for us. Tells us we can live from a place of security and trust, not worrying about what's going to happen to us tomorrow or the day after that, because our Father, our Daddy, has our back. He's got us. He has been so generous with us. And so that security, that trust, it frees us from a lot of the things that that, that pull at our attention, that pull at our hearts, it frees us from the treadmill of consumerism, from the frantic nature with which we typically approach life and work. God's grace frees us from not just living beyond our means or living at our means, but allows us to live within, well within our means, so that we can be generous. 
as our God is generous, so we can put our treasure where our heart is. Now, I just want to pause here for a second. We're going to get practical here in just a moment, but before we get to that bit, I want to acknowledge that in a room like this, there are some of us who are drowning when it comes to our finances. And there's probably some very real, hard reasons for that. And so what I want to say to you is, is as we talk about some of this stuff and as we think about and reflect on this passage, just you know, hearing Jesus' words to not worry about tomorrow is in and of itself a huge act of faith. And if that describes where you are at, just, just again, your head is way underwater when it comes to your finances, please talk to somebody here. Talk to us about it. That's the beauty of the community. As we'll see here in just a moment, the beauty of what God does in the church is allows us to share our resources with one another. And we may not be able to solve everything for you, but at least let those needs be known so that we can come alongside you and help you. Now, having said that, I think for most of us here, we do well to heed the words of Ron Sider. He wrote a a book a number of years ago now, a very important and prophetic book called Rich Christians in the Age of Hunger, Moving from Affluence to Generosity. And he says the killer line, I think, is 99% of Americans need to hear 99% of the time, give more and more away and sell your stuff. What 99% of Americans need to hear 99% of the time is give more away and sell your stuff. Now, what's interesting about this is that in our culture right now, we're having sort of this interesting moment where we're recognizing that we have too much stuff. There's a movement towards simplicity in our world right now. Going back a couple of years, there was that show Hoarders, right, where this, um, I love this title, Extreme Cleaning Specialist would show up at your house and help you get organized and get rid of all your junk, okay? The last couple of years, we've seen the, the, the tiny house movement. We've seen the minimalist movement. And then more recently, Marie Kondo has taken over the world <laughs> with her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. There's this recognition that we have too much stuff. Uh, there's a deep reaction, I think, to, to Western culture's overconsumption. We know at a very deep soul level, we have too much. We have way more than we need. And so there's this real interesting thing where there's this whole industry, this, this million, billion dollar industry around getting organized and getting rid of all of our excess. Meanwhile, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was inviting us to this very kind of life, a simple, generous life. So I want to spend a few minutes getting, getting practical, and this is always a dangerous thing to do in church, so just give me a little bit of grace here. And I, I offer this as the beginning point in a conversation, not as like the only way to do this, okay? So here, here's my sort of humble suggestion as a starting point. This is what I call the 10-10-80 plan. All right, where you give the first, I think there should be one more slide there. Yes, you give the first 10% away. Okay, this is called the tithe biblically. Then you save the next 10%, and then that other 80% you live off of. And we actually do this with our kids, or we do this with Marina. Cruz is not quite old enough for this yet, but we started doing this with her when she turned five. So she's got three buckets in her room one says giving, one says saving, and one says spending. And when we were explaining it to her, she had this question, well, the giving one, like, where does that money go? And so we told her, well, we give it to church. And she immediately burst into tears 
and was like, no, I don't want them to have my money. <laughs> so if you have problems, issues with tithing, just know that you're in good company. <laughs> you can talk with Marina about it afterwards. <laughs> uh, she, she has very, uh, there are very few things that Marina has a neutral reaction to. Now, I do want to spend a little bit more time talking about this concept of tithing because I think it is a very misunderstood concept. And I want to begin here with just a, a variety of scriptures that speak to the tithe. And this is not uh, comprehensive at all, but I think this is a really good place to start. You can just leave that up there for a second. Going all the way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God creates the world and calls it good, and we spent some time unpacking this idea of shalom. In God's shalom, the way that he created his world to function, for human beings to flourish, all of our needs were met in the garden. And what's interesting is that after our sin and rebellion and after we're, we're cast out of the garden... You would think that maybe the MO would be towards just get as much as you can to survive, right, in this broken, fallen, crazy world. But actually what God does is he sets limits on human beings and, and invites us to live within those limits. He establishes the Sabbath to limit our work so that we rest and trust that God will take care of us. And he establishes the tithe to limit our spending and our hoarding so that we are generous and so that we learn to trust God to take care of us. In our fallen world, in the state that we are in now, God meets our needs through sharing, through the redistribution of resources, through the generosity of his community. And for us, post-Jesus, this is the church. Now, there are all kinds of questions that come up for us around tithing. And I just want to acknowledge at, at this point that a lot of us probably have, especially if we've been around church for a while, we have some baggage here when it comes to how churches have used their resources. I think there's a whole generation of people who have seen church resources abused or even embezzled at worst and then maybe used in dubious ways at best. And for me, a big tension at different points in my faith journey have been, why are we spending so much money on a building and lights and a sound system when there are people who are going hungry in our own community, or who are going hungry around the world. I still wrestle with these questions at a very deep level. Now, I think a, a problem that we have here on this point is, is a misunderstanding of church and kingdom. The kingdom of God is bigger than the church. It is how the story is going to end. Jesus inaugurates his kingdom in his arrival, and particularly in his death and resurrection, but there's a fulfillment of that kingdom that will come at the end. But in between that is the church. And it is our calling as the church to point people towards the reality of the kingdom and to work towards those kingdom goals. In other words, you cannot separate kingdom from the church or the church from the kingdom. I've heard some people say, I don't tie it to the church because I'm more kingdom-minded. So I give to some other cause or organization that you know, I think is doing good work. And again, I think that's a good, there's a good impulse there, but it's a non-sequitur. It doesn't make sense. You cannot build the kingdom without the church. This is a very silly illustration. Okay, so just bear with me for a moment. 
had a roommate once who hated eating fruits and vegetables. And he came home from the grocery store one day, and he's very, very excited. He's like, Steve, you will not believe what I discovered. And I'm, you know, interested to see what he's going to say. And he pulls out a box of organic cake mix. And he goes, dude, I can just eat cake now. It's good for me. It's healthy. It's organic. <laughs> I think we, this is a similar kind of mistake, right? The human body, if it is going to be healthy, it needs fruits and vegetables. It cannot exist on organic cake alone. And if the kingdom of God is going to grow and flourish in our world, we need healthy, strong, and vibrant churches. You cannot, you cannot separate those things. But again, I think we've disconnected the idea of kingdom from church. And I think one reason is because we have some problems with church. Okay, we don't treasure our church. And, and I don't necessarily mean that as an indictment of us, but just in general. I think there's a, a problem with do we really treasure church? We tend to treat it like a disposable option. And again, a large part of the blame here falls on the shoulders of the church. This is partly why we're doing this discover, discovery thing tonight. I'm very passionate about this, about us being open about our finances and how we use them and, and what that's all about. So please come tonight. We can talk more about some of the, the specifics of this there. But I also wanted to remind us, want us to remember that the kingdom comes through the work of the church cannot separate those things out. Okay, one more issue that I think comes up a lot with this conversation around tithing is I'll hear people say, well, I give 5%, but then the rest, you know, I donate my time or I'll buy some sort of tangible thing as a gift for the church. And you know what? That makes a lot of sense to me. However, Scripture speaks to this very directly. Particularly in Deuteronomy and Malachi, God refers to tithes and offerings and makes it very clear that these are distinct categories. So the idea here is that there's the tithe, that first 10% that sort of goes into what we might call a general fund to be used by God's people. And then there's extra stuff on top of that that we give, whether that be time or other, other money or uh, tangible items. Now, I just want to give you an example of, of how we do this. I know this is kind of risky, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? This is a screenshot of our, uh, of our Google Doc where we keep track of our budget for my family, all right? We have four categories. Income, this is where we get that 10% of that is our tithe. Then we have another category called offerings, and this is where we give money to uh, two people uh, in, in, uh, specifically. One of them is a missionary in Bulgaria. The other is a, a friend of ours who's still doing campus ministry in Boston. Then we have this fourth category that we call generosity, and it is literally $200. I left that there on purpose, okay? And what we do with this category is, is we get to have fun. And each month, it's sort of like, what's going on? It, you know, is there a need in our community? Is there something we can do for our discovery group? Is there someone that we need to have over for dinner? Is there someone who's made a specific request that we can help meet. This is the most fun money we spend every month, okay? But, what's, but we've, what we've done is set it aside and, and allowed it to be there as a part of our budget so that we have the money to respond to needs as they come up. 
Now, I want to be really clear here. I, I'm not saying you need to do what we do. I'm just offering this as a very tangible, practical example. The one thing, though, that Scripture is very clear about is the 10% tithe. I think after that, there is a tremendous amount of freedom. And it's not necessarily freedom to do whatever you want with your resources, but it is freedom to be generous. So having kind of thrown all of this out there, if the 10-10-80 plan is helpful, go for it. Try that out and see what it's like. If this insight into our budget is helpful, go for it. See what that's like. If you are in school, college student, grad student, and you're in a sort of a weird place when it comes to income, um, my challenge or encouragement to you would be to just try something out. Um, start some sort of practice of giving and see how it goes. I also want to say this. If you have never budgeted or, or kept track of your money before, um, this is also one of the things that I'm very passionate about. I, I'd love to talk to you about it. Not that I am, like, going to fix it for you <laughs> at all, but I love helping people come up with the concept of a budget. My wife actually is even better at it than I am, so you probably want to go talk to her first. And then Rolly also loves budgets and spreadsheets, so I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you as well. Um, but again, I think that's such a, it's such a hard thing to do, but it's such a great practice to sit down with someone else and work through some of these questions. Now, wherever we are at with that, Again, I think the one thing that Scripture makes very clear is that we are all called to practice this spiritual discipline of living within our limits so that we can be generous. And the really fascinating thing here is that this is the one area of life where God says, test me. Try me out. See, see what happens. Malachi chapter 3, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will the mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Now, some people get a little squeamish here because this can sound like a prosperity sort of teaching. I just want you to know, I personally, uh, Discovery Leadership rejects that sort of teaching. God does not tell us to give so that we will become rich. God invites us to give so that we become free from inferior masters. So that we begin to live a more wholehearted life. So we can invest our treasure in treasure that will last. And as we come in for a close, just to, just to keep this really brutally honest, it's interesting how this stuff works when you're a pastor and when you have to teach on these things, right? So we, um, over Christmas break, we're on vacation for a couple of days, and Amy and I, every year we sit down and we set some goals for the new year. And so we were setting some of our, our financial goals, and we've planned this Matthew series for a while. We've known about Matthew since late summer, early fall, and, and I've known about this particular Sunday since, you know, November or December, and that was kind of weighing on my heart as we were um, thinking about the new year and setting our goals. And so we were trying to come up with how can we be more generous? How can we give more? How can we model this for our community? And so we made a couple of commitments along those lines. And then 
We got home and almost immediately got an email from our landlord saying, um, we're not going to renew your lease for the next year. And then um, also, it would kind of be great if you could move out early. <laughs> now, there's a whole story to that that I'm not going to get into, but it has nothing to do with us. It has more to do with them. Anyway, all of that to say is, here we are in this place of like, okay, where are we going to go? We're super worried about what the future looks like all of a sudden, right? And within that, as we've been doing searching and, and we're in the application process, we're finding that probably the best option for us is to downsize. And, and there's a big part of me that struggles with that because I have this thing in my head where it's like you get to this level and then you get to this level and then you get to this level, right? And so going back is like, oh, failure. But that looks like a really good option for us. And what's interesting is that it frees up all this extra space in our budget to be generous. Be careful what you preach about. <laughs> Now, here's how I want to close, okay? We, we've, the last couple of weeks, um, just had a series of challenges for our church to begin 2019. We have one more today, okay? Next week, no challenge, right? <laughs> um, but a couple of weeks ago, we had this relational challenge. Get right with people. Actually sit down and talk to someone who's hurt you so that you are in right relationship to begin 2019. Okay, then last Sunday we had the prayer challenge. What exercise do you need to commit to for the next 30 days to cultivate a practice of prayer. And now this week, a generosity challenge. As we work together to build a strong foundation for discovery, for God's kingdom to grow and to flourish through this church, I'm challenging all of us who call discovery our home to step up to the tithe. Give that first 10% here. Or take a, a significant step in that direction. Okay, if going from, say, 2 to 10 feels like too big of a leap, go from 2 to 5 for a while and see how that goes. If you're already at 10%, consider going beyond that if it's possible. And again, this is not just an individual challenge. This is a challenge for us as a church as well. We try to model this by giving away 10% of what we bring in to people doing good work around the world on campus at UC Davis to meeting needs uh, within our community. This also shows up in very specific choices that we make. And this is a real simple example, but I want to tell you guys a little bit about this. We recently started serving coffee from a company called 1951 Coffee Company at our cart out there in the lobby. Uh, 1951 is an organization that I know from my time in Oakland. Um, a former Discovery attender who was a student at UC Davis now works for them. And so we have a couple of connections here within the Discovery family as well. They are doing amazing work with the refugee community in the Bay Area and in San Diego, and the next place they hope to be is in Sacramento. And what they do is they train refugees in uh, barista skills to get them jobs in cafes, uh, working within the coffee industry, and they just have some phenomenal stories of of transformation, of meeting people's needs, of being a blessing through their work. So as a church, we could get some cheap coffee at Safeway and call it good, or we can use our resources to be generous and even in this small way, point people towards God's larger kingdom values because the economics of the kingdom of God are different than the economics of our world. So individually and collectively, the challenge is how can we live within our means so that we can express tangible generosity as a response to the grace and generosity that we've received from God? 
This is a big challenge. But I love it, man. I get really excited about this kind of stuff. Because I think we're going to have some incredible stories as God surprises us in all kinds of ways. So let's rise to this challenge. Let's live wholeheartedly, serving our noble master and then enjoying the freedom and honestly the fun that comes from simplicity and generosity. Let's pray. Father, again, we acknowledge just how good you have been to us. How ridiculously generous and gracious you have been to send your son Jesus to live, to to model a different way of being human for us, to then give his life and die in our place, overcoming our our sin and our rebellion, paying the price so that we could be in right relationship once again with you. That we are so grateful for that. We begin there this morning just acknowledging your graciousness and generosity towards us. Father, if there are those here today who need to respond to that truth, would you give them the courage to do that and to let someone know? And then for the rest of us, God, even in this moment, would you begin to to stir our hearts towards what it might look like to live more simply and more generously so that we invest our treasure in things that will last. God, thanks for the opportunity to be a part of a community where we can share our stuff, share our resources so that more and more people know and experience the good news of Jesus. And I think that someday that when we are all in heaven, we'll have this experience of looking at people who who will be able to say, because of your generosity, I am here today. So yeah, whatever whatever step we need to take um, as we think through this, uh, would you give us the courage to do that? And would you surprise us again with uh, all the different ways that you take care of us and remind us that you have us? care about us, that you love us, that you will provide for what we need. God, we pray all of this today in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This is the point in our service that we set aside time um, to sit and reflect on what we've heard to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and to to guide us. And I would encourage you in this time to really sit and wrestle with what you've heard this morning. As Pastor Steve mentioned, this is sort of a a topic that can make some people squeamish, but um, it's not one that is uncomfortable for God. And we invite you to sit and and press into these these issues that are hard and challenging, but it's, it's what makes our 